Well, good morning again, and welcome again to Cross of Life. My name is Caleb. I'm the pastor, and we are continuing a sermon series we've been doing called Questioning Christianity. Today, the question we are taking on is, if Christianity is about love, why are Christians so unloving? David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group. We've never heard that name. The Barna Group is the premier research institution on church demographics in North America. And David Kinneman, in 2007, wrote a book called Unchristian. It was the result of a massive research study he did on the reputation of Christianity, and the results were startling. Kinneman noticed that there was a massive shift in the way that people perceived the church between the years 1996 and 2007. Uh, Kinneman found that in 1996, 85% of non-Christians had a positive opinion of Christianity. But in 10 years, that changed. By the year 2007, 38% of non-Christians had a bad impression of Christianity, and 17% thought that Christianity was actively harming society. Why the shift? Well, it wasn't that the Christian faith had fundamentally changed. In fact, Kinneman, in his research, found that the vast majority of non-Christians could actually articulate the premise of the Christian faith, which is that Jesus is God's Son who came to earth to die for our sins and that we'll go to heaven if we believe in him. It wasn't that the faith had changed, but that the people who professed it had changed. Kinneman found that while many people were having an increasingly negative opinion of Christianity, they maintained a relatively positive view of Christ. Brennan Manning was a Christian author and public speaker, and he said it like this. He said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. But it's not just some research from Dave Kinneman or a pithy quote from an author. This is exactly what Jesus told us would happen. Do you remember that place in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When Jesus said these words, he would have been on the shore of the Sea of Galilee looking at all the little towns that are on the hills that surround the Sea of Galilee. And the people who knew that area would know on a dark, stormy night when you're out on the sea, seeing a city lit is like salvation. It's safety from the storm. And Jesus said, we're like that. We are light in a dark world. Salvation for people who feel like they're caught in the storms of life. But then Jesus says, let your light shine. As if maybe he thought we wouldn't do it. As if maybe he thought we would be tempted to close the blinds and keep the light to ourselves, but not let it shine out of our windows. Sometimes I wonder if that's the problem with North American Christianity. We keep the light for ourselves, but when people look at us from the outside, they see the most depressing city on a hill ever. There are a lot of reactions that you can have to this kind of message. Some people might say, you know what, that's not our church. 
That's all those other churches out there who are unloving. Our church is really loving. I would like to believe that, but at least Kinnaman's research would tell us that especially churches like ours are ones that are perceived as unloving. And some people may say, well, yeah, but I want to love people and I try to love people. And I would agree with you. I think we could go around this room and every one of us would say, yeah, I try to love people, I want to love people, but there's a problem, there's a difference between intention and perception, right? We may intend to do good things, to love people, but very often they are perceived as unloving. And some people might even say, that's just the nature of the Christian faith. Christianity is an offensive message to a sinful world. And I would agree with you to a point, When the Bible talks about the offensiveness of Christianity, it talks about us being offensive for how unruly our love is for other people. People should be offended by how unconditionally we love each other. And so this is a tough message to hear. And you might get dismissive, you might get angry, but my hope for us is that we have the humility to say we might have good intentions, but what people are seeing are not always those intentions. So today I want to do three ways that Christians are often perceived as unloving by non-Christians. And I want to show you that the solution to those three things is not being less Christian or watering down who we are, but actually biting down harder on what the Bible says Christians are to be. And then at the end, I want to show you Jesus. Because this is not just a to-do list about how to be a better church. This is about saving people's souls for eternity. So I hope you're willing to go on that journey with me. I pray that we all have humility as we do it. The first perception that non-Christians have of Christians is that Christians are always trying to convert people. You know this if you've ever had a, a random guy hit on you at a bar. You know this feeling if you've had the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons come to your door. You know this feeling if you've ever sat through a presentation for a timeshare or watched literally any TV commercial ever, the people who are talking to you can say all they want that they're on your side, that they have your best interests in mind, but you know there's an ulterior motive. That's what many people perceive about Christians. Dave Kinnaman's research revealed that only one-third, in fact, less than one-third, of non-Christians believe that Christians genuinely care about them when they share their faith. Now compare this to what Christians believe that they are doing. Kinnaman's same research said that more than two-thirds of Christians believe that non-Christians perceive them as genuine when they share their faith. Is that disconnect of intention and perception? Christians are intending to be genuine and loving when they share their faith, but very often they are perceived as not loving. So where is the disconnect? Well, Dave Kinnaman in his research found that very often non-Christians feel like they are being tricked into the faith. He said that many of those who would say that they didn't feel that Christians were genuinely caring about them had experienced some situation with either a gimmick or a bait-and-switch tactic to get them to listen to the Christian faith. So come here for this thing that's not really about Christianity, but when you get there, we'll invite you to our church or we'll preach at you. And people felt tricked. They felt deceived. Actually, Kinnaman said it like this. He said, it is a myth that the best evangelism efforts are those that reach the most people at once. The reality 
is that the most effective efforts to share faith are interpersonal and relationship-based. One of the trends of Christianity in the late 20th, early 21st century was to create large programs that would bring a lot of people in. And that, and that worked when 85% of the population had a positive view of Christianity. But as that started to shift, people started to be less and less tolerant of being baited and switched into listening to Christianity. And Kinnaman actually found that of the people that he interviewed who became Christians later in life, 71% of them said that they became a Christian because of a personal conversation with a trusted friend, teacher, or family member. Less than a third said they became Christians because someone invited them to a church service or an event. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that if we are going to try to share our faith without first building a loving, genuine relationship with people, it's probably not going to work. Now, I say probably because there are a group of people who do come to faith when they're invited by big programs and services and that sort of thing. But the overwhelming evidence is we have to first genuinely care about a person, regardless of whether they're going to become a Christian or not, in order to have the chance to share our faith with them. But again, this isn't just research. This is exactly what the Bible says. In 1 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter is talking to Christian women who are married to unchristian men. And he says, your best bet, ladies, to get your husband to become a Christian is not to give a gospel presentation to him or to invite him to come to church. Your best bet is to love him daily. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 3. It says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. He says it's not flashy. It's not simple. It's day in, day out, sacrifice. And God calls all of us to that for those who don't believe in Jesus. To love them despite whether they're going to come to church with us or ever become a Christian at all. To sacrifice, to give of ourselves for them, to build those loving relationships so we have the chance to share that faith with them. The second perception of non-Christians is that Christians are too political. Now to be clear, part of being a Christian is to be political. God calls us as Christians to be good citizens of our city, our province, our nation. And part of being a good citizen is participating in the political process, having conversations about the policies of our politicians, and voting for those politicians as we see fit. But what they would say is not that there's a problem with Christians participating in politics, but how we participate in politics. Now, I could probably preach a whole sermon series on how a Christian can positively engage in politics and I'm not going to do that right now, but I'm just going to give you two things that people notice about Christians when they are talking about politics, and they both fill into this category that Christians are imbalanced when talking about politics. One of the tough things for Christians to understand is that there is no political party that has the market cornered on Christian doctrine. So as you look at every single party in our political system or the political system south of the border, none of those parties can be called the Christian party. I'll just show you this. There are four things that the Bible totally and strongly affirms. Those four things are 
the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman, intense investment in racial and social justice, an infinite value on life, especially life in the womb and late in life, and a willingness to invest in the poor and needy to the point of disadvantaging ourselves, even if they cannot repay us. So just think of those four things. Those are four things that fit into two political typical categories, right? So who do you vote for? It's not that simple. But the problem is many people perceive Christians as simple when they say things like, no self-respecting Christian could vote for that party. Or how can you call yourself a Christian and vote for them? Or real Christians will vote for this guy. When they hear us talk that way, they can see the hypocrisy in our own teaching. And so who do you vote for? I'll leave that up to your conscience. But know that whoever you vote for is going to be falling short of living up to Christian ideals. And your job as a Christian is to make up for that. If your political party is not affirming something that is in the Bible, your job is to work for that in your community. The second way that they would perceive us to be imbalanced is that we talk more about politics than we talk about our faith. And this one you kind of have to uh, um, evaluate yourself. But if we were to think through all of your conversations or put a statistical analysis of your Facebook feed up and compare the amount of times that the name Trump or Trudeau or Jesus came up, what do you think we'd find? For many of us, that's an imbalance. And when non-Christians see that, they see you as more devoted to politics than you are to your faith. The Bible would not have us live this way. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. We await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we participate in the politics of Canada and Ontario and Mississauga, but we have a bigger citizenship, a citizenship that lasts forever. And in the Psalms, it tells us, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. The third and final way that we're going to take on today that our perceptions of non-Christians is that Christians are judgmental. According to Kinnaman's research, more than half of Christians believe that their church is a place of unconditional love. But if you ask non-Christians, you'd find that less than a fifth of them believe that, that churches are places of unconditional love. Now again, this is a disconnect between intention and perception, but in many ways I think it is because Christians have forgotten the heart of Christianity. Christianity's basic, most fundamental teaching is all people are wrong before God. All people are unrighteous. They are sinful before God. Whether they are a good person by the world's standards or a terrible person by the world's standards, God's depth, depth perception is flat. But all people can be saved, not by cleaning their life up, but by having Christ absorb their sin and give them his rightness before God. And that is given to them not, not, not on the basis of what they have done or have not done, what they are doing or are not doing, or what they will do or will not do. It is a free gift. It levels the playing field. But as humans, we often forget that, that God's depth perception is flat. We see people and we see good looks, or money, or influence, 
or a personality that's contagious. And we start to rank people in our minds, even though we maybe would never say that. These are the type of people I like to be around. These are the type of people I don't really care for. And God says, if you're going to follow what the Christian church has taught since Jesus was on earth, that has to be flat. And so when people see us being judgmental of people outside our walls or even people inside our walls, they say, why would I want to be part of that? That's just like everywhere else in my life. The Bible attests to this, by the way. Uh, did you know there's a place in the Bible where Christians are explicitly told that the moral behavior of people who are not Christians is none of their business? Now you do. <laughs> First Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul is talking to a church that has a case of sexual immorality inside the church. And the church is not really dealing with it, so he says, here's how you're going to deal with it. But then he says afterwards, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immortal or, or immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. He says, if you're looking at moral behavior of all people and your job is to separate yourself from them, then you have to separate yourself from literally everybody. But he knows you can't do that. So he says, now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So he's talking about within the church, we're going to call each other out for our sin. We're going to do it with an open Bible, not because of our opinions, but only on the basis of what God has said is true. And then he finishes with this. What business is it mind of mine? Is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. That means as you look out at the world, you cannot judge a person on their sexual orientation or the way they spend their money or the way they dress or the way they look or the way they spend their time. None of it. It's not your business. Sometimes I think we forget that people change morally after they have been changed spiritually. That what comes first is understanding the love of Jesus, and then behavior will change even very slightly in people, but not the other way around. We do not ask anyone to clean up their life or be a certain type of person or look a certain way before we share Jesus' love with them. That is what comes first. And after that, we can deal with the morals. Sometimes we forget the first three chapters of Romans. If you're going to find, I don't think you'll find a better summation of the Christian faith than the book of Romans. And the first three chapters give us this wonderful foundation. They say first in chapter one, non-Christians are bad people. <laughs> That's what it says. In, in, first, in Romans one, it says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Just pause there for a second. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. So non-Christian people are bad, but then literally one verse later, he says, you Christians, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment, you who pass judgment do the same things. Non-Christians are bad people, Christians are bad people, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Flat depth perception. 
Everyone who sits in this room and who sits outside of this room has the exact same status before God. They are completely sinful and have been given free forgiveness from Jesus. And once we remember that, I think we lose all of our judgmentalism, don't we? I can't look at you and judge you by the way you raise your kids or by the way you choose to spend your money, by the way you act on the weekends. I can simply preach you Jesus. And so that's what I want to do. Because it would be easy at this point to say, all right, here is our to-do list on how to be a better church so we can be nicer to people. And while that's important, it's not going to happen unless we have a un, um, an unstoppable power source driving us to that kind of love. And that's Jesus. I have yet to find the source for this quote. I've searched many times for it, but I know it's something that I didn't think up. So I guess you can give me credit if you want, um, but for now it's going to be an unknown source to this quote. Uh, the Christian church has historically been one of the most poorly or run organizations on earth. And the very fact that it still exists shows it is not completely run by humans. If it was our power, our personalities, our organizational tactics, our outreach efforts that kept the church alive, it would fall apart. I am not a good person. Our leaders are not good people. The people who have been part of this church for its many years of existence are not people who keep a church like this alive. But that's not what we believe. We believe that Jesus keeps this church alive. Believe that Jesus, who forgives sins, gives life to people who cannot keep life for themselves, who cannot live up. He gives them acknowledgement and peace and a future that they don't deserve. And that's who gathers here on a Sunday. Sinful people, people who need Jesus. They're not here because they're trying to push an agenda. They're here because they're receiving the only thing that gives them hope in life. And so I want to give you two thoughts take home. One of those is for those of you who would call yourselves Christians, and the other one is for those of you who would not, who would consider yourself either skeptical or even antagonistic versus Christianity. And I want to base them on these words from Ephesians chapter 5. This is a section where the Apostle Paul is talking about how husbands ought to treat their wives, but in this section he weaves into it the relationship that Jesus has with his church. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present herself to her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So the first thought for those of you who would call yourselves Christians is this. The church is Jesus' bride. When you were baptized by the washing with water, the word, you were given a new name. You were brought into a new family. A family that you don't lose because of your behavior, but a family that makes you holy and blameless before God. Christ has made you part of himself, like a husband and wife are one flesh. And he left his father to be united to his wife, the church, so that they could be one flesh. 
And so if you've lived your entire life as a hypocritical Christian or have fallen into any of these ways where non-Christians perceive us to be unloving, I want you to hear this. You are Jesus' bride. It reminds me of the story of the young couple who was very much in love. They got engaged. They're planning the wedding. But, they had a, but she had a secret. She had had an affair while they were engaged. And it stopped. It was only one time, but she didn't tell him. On that day when they were getting married, she was weeping in her room because she couldn't stand who she was and that this man who she was going to give her life to had no idea. But she went through with it. She toughed it out, said her tears were tears of joy. They got married, moved in together, but it still kept eating at her. Every time she'd walk down the stairs for breakfast, there he would be smiling up at her, but she knew that he didn't know. And so one day she broke down, and she told him. She told him everything. And without a word, he got up from the table, went upstairs, and she thought it was over. She thought, that's it. He's going to pack his bags. He's moving out. But when he came back down the stairs, he was holding her wedding dress. And then he put it over her head and said, this is how I choose to see you. That's the relationship you have with Jesus. You may have messed up a thousand and one times and done things that would break his heart. And that he still chooses to see you as the pure, holy, blameless bride that he loves. And so live for that kind of love. The second thought I want to give you is for those of you who would maybe consider yourselves not Christians, and that's that knowing the church will bring you closer to Jesus. It's a temptation in Western Christianity, Western really thought, that you can be spiritual by yourself without having to be part of a Christian community. Uh, the Bible would actually say otherwise, because the church is Jesus' bride. And in the same way that maybe you're at work and you meet up with a guy at work, and he seems like a really nice guy, so you go out for a beer and you get to know each other and and you like him, so you say, oh, well, let's get together. We'll go fishing this weekend. So you go fishing this weekend, and you come back from the fishing trip, and you realize you had a great time, but you don't really know much about the guy because, well, you haven't met his family. So he invites you over for dinner. You go over to his house, and then you meet his wife. And despite the fact that he's pretty handsome, she's rather homely. And she isn't friendly when you walk in the door, and she's completely disorganized and doesn't want to help with dinner, says odd things while you're sitting at the table and doesn't even walk you to the door when you leave. What would you think? Well, I wouldn't have married her. But the fact that he did tells me something about him. In the same way, when you walk in these doors, you meet a rather homely bride who doesn't have all of her stuff together, isn't always organized, isn't always friendly, may not walk you to the door or give you everything that you hoped for. But what you can know about this church is not that we are here because we are good people, but because Jesus has saved us. And that we hope that when you see us, you see how great Jesus is. And then one final thought for all of us. As we think about how to be more loving to the world around us, Let's remember who Jesus associated with when he was on earth. 
There's an amazing section where Jesus is talking about the end of the world, and he's talking about how he will know people were Christians. And he says it for us in Matthew 25. He says, The king will say to those on his right, so those who are going to heaven, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, or invite you in, or needing clothes, and clothes you, clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and go to visit you? And the king will say, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of, or sisters of mine, you did for me. We look out at the world and see people who probably don't deserve our love. Let's remember to see Jesus' face in their face. And that those actions we do, we do for Jesus, out of love for him. Pray that motivates us to better outreach, better inreach, and a more loving community. Let's pray for that. Jesus, thank you for calling together this group of ragamuffin sinners and spreading your grace liberally on them. We know that we have warts and all sorts of weird stuff that we do. We ask that you would work that out of us through your grace and through the encouragement and accountability of this community. But we also pray that you would drive us back to the cross for the times that we fail. To know that your unfailing love is faithful to us in all situations. We ask that that love would show through our lives to the people that we know so that more can come to know this message. We ask it in your name. Amen.